Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there. And this is part two of Trail of Tears, which we already did part one. If you haven't heard that, I would strongly recommend you go listen to that one first. Yes, uh, and just a, a 15-second recap of part one. Um, we are in 1830, roughly, and uh, America is getting along great with Native Americans, and they say, why don't we all just live together and we can all just share wealth? The end. Oh, wait. That's not what was happening at all. No. Americans wanted more land. The Indians had land. Americans felt that the Indians weren't putting it to good enough use and used that to morally justify forcing them to leave their land. That's right. In the form, officially, of the 1830 uh, Removal Act. And uh, that's where we pick up. And the, the government said, you know what? Let's start off with uh, future podcaster Chuck Bryant's tribe, the Choctaw. Are you Choctaw? I have very uh, negligible amount of Choctaw. As long as it's not negligent. No. In fact, I'm not exactly sure how much, but I know my... Uh, we, but I think my dad did my family tree at one point, and I got some Choctaw in me. I love Choctaw. Yeah. It's great. So they, they picked the Choctaw because they said, um, well, they're pretty friendly, and we think this can be a good, um, I mean, was it sort of a proof of concept? That's what of I How understand. this could work? Yeah. They said, how about you guys go first? Right. And the Choctaw said, okay, fine. We'll sign this, we'll sign this treaty where we're going to cede all of our land east of the Mississippi to the federal government. Yeah. And in exchange, we're going to get a sizable amount of land in this new Air Indian territory, what you guys will later call Oklahoma. Right. And the, the Choctaw, again, they, they went largely willingly. Yeah. And, even though they were split internally, like all the tribes were to some degree. Right. But the, the, there were, th- and there were three divisions and the Eastern division, which was led by Chief, uh, Mushula Tubi, uh, he basically said, you know what? We're not going to win this war. Let's just, we'll just sign this treaty. Right. So he negotiated the treaty and the Choctaw moved. And as they were moving, they, they, the whole thing was carried out. The whole Indian removal process was carried out by the War Department, which in and of itself says something. Yeah. The fact that, it's being carried out by federal soldiers with guns and bayonets um, rather than, say, some other civilian department. That in and of itself says a lot, right? Yeah. It's going to form a certain type of um, tension to the whole thing. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, great movie uh, Dr. Strangelove. There's no fighting in the war room. It's one of the best lines from that movie. So the Choctaw are going. Some of them said, no, I'm not going. And they were shackled and bound and were forced to undertake this journey. Um, I think if you, if you look at the, the trail that the Cherokees took, I think it was like 1200 miles for them. Uh-huh. They were coming from, uh, the Carolinas and Georgia by way of middle Tennessee, I think. But the Choctaw were coming from Mississippi and Alabama. It may have been a little shorter, but regardless, the, the Choctaw were forced to march. Um, with very little supplies, with very little care taken to prevent them from dying. Yeah. Um, for several hundred, if not a thousand miles. 
out of their homelands to this new Indian territory. And a lot of them did die on the way. Yeah. And I get the feeling that the, you know, the ones dying were like, the attitude is, well, that's just fewer people we have to worry about on that this was, journey. That, that is very astute. I think that like that, no is, that is kind of the impression that it was kind of like you're, you're lucky we're letting any of you move anyway and not just exterminating all of you. Right. And again, like I pointed out in the last episode, um, there was, I think, a, this other attitude that like, well, I mean, you're, you're American Indians. You can just, doesn't matter where you're from. You can get along out there. Like it doesn't matter that you're coming from the lush, green uh southeastern uh what would become united states mm-hmm. and moving out to the great plains which you know nothing about right. you don't know how to succeed there or farm there necessarily they probably could have figured it out because they had done so all across uh, north america for you know eons mm-hmm. but um it was they weren't set up for success in any way being relocated right so 2500 choctaw died along the way out of 20000 Died in three waves of migration. And the first group to arrive in Oklahoma found some reporters waiting there. And, um. Cause there were white people there too already. Yeah. There were settlers. Yeah. And when the, I'm sure when the Eastern tribes got there, they were like, white people, no! <laughs> yeah. You promised. Um, but when the, when the first group, the first of the three Choctaw waves, and from what I understand, they were the first ones to move under the Indian Removal Act. But when they got there, there were some reporters there that said, you know, how how was it, basically? Right. One scale of one to ten. And one of the Choctaw chiefs, is, who who it was exactly was lost to history, it was either Chief uh, Nidikechi or Chief John Harkins. And one of them described it as a trail of tears and death. Yeah. And that's where the trail of tears ultimately got its its name from, was a, a an, an unknown Choctaw chief. Who were the uh, was among the first to um, arrive in Oklahoma? Yeah, and you'll hear um, a lot of names in this uh, part two, like Chief John Harkins. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a very American Indian name, right? And these are just great examples of how enculturated some of these uh, factions of tribes had become, right? Like they were speaking English, they were had English names, and um, still being removed. Yeah, and again. Traded extensively with white people. A lot of them were Christian. Um, some of them fought alongside the federal government. And yes, they were still being removed. All right. So the Trail of Tears was uh, kind of coined there, although it wouldn't, like you said earlier in the first uh, episode, that the, the the Cherokee Trail of Tears is sort of what most people think about as the official Trail of Tears. Right. But regardless, this reporter got this, uh, blasted it out, and the whole world sort of is now privy to these stories of this atrocity going on. Uh-huh. So you might think, well, they probably just tried this once then and got so much blowback that they said, yeah, this is, does not look good for us. Right. Um, so we should kind of stop it. Yeah, that's not how it went. No, not how it went at all. No, the, the whole process ground on. I think there was kind of a, probably a sense among the pro removal factions in Washington saying like just 2,500 died out of 20,000? Wow, yeah, that's way less than we thought it was going to be, you know? Yeah, an acceptable amount of casualties, right. basically. So, um, and um, with with uh, the white Americans as well, the idea was ultimately Indians are going to be free from encroachment by whites out there in Indian territory. The War Department is tasked with making sure that happens. The War Department did not do that. Yeah. And in fact, when they got out west, they found the same 
type of harassment and encroachment that that they experienced uh, east of the Mississippi as well. Well, maybe worse too, because not only were white settlers <laughs> west of the Mississippi encroaching, they like we talked about in episode one, there were already Plains Indians. They were like, whoa, 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 who who are these people? You know, I know they look like us, but we're we're different. You know, right? And the white settlers like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. we're encroaching on your land too. So it was it was not friendly in any way. Yeah, you know this arrival. Plus, also after the War of eighteen twelve and um, the Seminole Wars, the U.S. didn't have any European powers on the continent any longer. Yeah, which meant two things: one, the Indians weren't a useful buffer between the U.S. and say the British. Yeah, they didn't need. They weren't needed in that respect any longer, which put them in a very um, shaky position. And then secondly, there was no European power that the Indians could ally themselves with right. to check American aggression which against they them. they had done with both Britain and Spain. So after that, and during this Indian removal process, part of the reason why it was so rough and brutal was because there was no reason outside of anything moral to check American aggression in, in this process. Yeah, so things got worse. Uh, a bad situation got worse. Uh, right here in Georgia, again, uh, with the Cherokee Nation, they held these lotteries uh, between 1805 and 1832. They had seven lotteries, basically, where you could, uh, a white male could, if you were over 18 years old, could buy a lottery ticket uh, for four bucks, about a hundred dollars today. Mm-hmm. And that would give you a chance if you were picked to buy a 160 acre tract of land <clears throat> that was not theirs. Right. Which <laughs> that kind of says it all. Yeah. And those, those, a lot of those parcels still exist. You can trace the, the, um, land parcels back to the original lottery. Today we call them subdivisions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You said about three quarters of these parcels in Georgia. Uh, you can still trace back. So right. that's amazing. So the Chickasaws were up next, Chuck. They were sick of being harassed and, um, by white settlers and said, we're out of here. We'll, we'll, we'll take the government up on its offer. Here are all of our lands east of the Mississippi. We'll take some land west of the Mississippi. And the government said, great. Here's a treaty. Let's sign it. Uh, slap each other on the back. Maybe have a cigar. And that's that. Yeah. And the Choctaw got or the uh, Chickasaw got out to Indian territory and found they didn't have any land out there. Yeah. They had to negotiate with the Choctaw who gotten out there a year or two earlier yeah. to buy some of their land. Yeah. Talk about a raw deal. Well, it is a raw deal and it's interesting that some of the um I mean, I don't think word was getting back, but you could see a little bit of the wisdom of well, hey, the writing's on the wall, so at least we can get out there early. Mhm. And claim some land of our own. Right. And that's what happened. You know, the Choctaw had claimed this land and then the Chickasaw had to come out there and deal with them. Well, I think, I think, no, I think they, they had been given actual territory by the federal government. Right. But the, they, it didn't pan out. They hadn't actually gotten that land. Right. I mean, it wasn't in, like you said, the War Department just sort of washed their hands of it all, right? Right. So then you also have the Seminole as well, right? The Seminole took a different tack. They they were definitely the ones that were the biggest thorn in the side of the Indian removal process. Yeah, for sure. So you remember back in, I think, 1817, 1818, Andrew Jackson fought the first Seminole War. Uh-huh. He did not win the first Seminole War. The Seminoles were still there. 
And although he did get a lot of land from the Spanish in Florida, the Seminoles ultimately came out on top. The second Seminole War took place when the, um, when the Seminoles, a very small faction that were prepared to leave, went against the wishes of the tribe in general Mm -hmm. and negotiated secretly with the federal government to cede the land. Yeah. And the Seminole, the rest of the Seminole tribe said, no, they, they didn't represent us. We're not leaving. And the federal government said, oh, yeah, well, we're going to come down and invade. And the Second Seminole War um, went from 1835 to 1842. Yeah, man, seven years. That's tough. Yeah, thousands and thousands of people died. It was a war, a straight-up war between the Seminoles and the federal government. And, again, the Seminoles won. Yeah, you said here that the um, in today's dollars, the the government spent about $2 billion fighting that war? About a billion Oh, a billion dollars? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so that's number two. The third Seminole War uh, was from 1855 to 1858, and that was the last attempt of the U.S. to say, please get out of here. Well, not please, but get the heck out of here. <laughs> and that failed. And so eventually the Seminole got paid pretty good money, mm-hmm. the holdouts uh, there for their land. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, if there's a success story in all of this... It- it yeah, really was, looked it was hard, the, though. The Seminoles, but yeah, it it also resulted in the deaths of a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so this next part is sort of sets up to play out over kind of the remaining years of the Trail of Tears, and there are some important names in here that um, you should take note of. So get out your pad and <laughs> your pen. Exactly. Don't literally take a note, especially if you're driving. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. So the Cherokee, they. They sort of did a similar thing that the Seminoles did uh, when a small group of people make this treaty that the rest of the tribe doesn't necessarily uh, agree with. Right. Uh, and this time it was called the Treaty of New Ekotoa. I thought it was Ekotoa at first, too, but then I stopped and realized I, I think it's Echitoa. Echitoa? I think so. All right. We'll go with Echitoa. I like that better anyway. Uh, so there were about 20 Cherokee leaders that... Um, and the names they were headed at this point at uh, Chief John Ridge, uh, his brother Major Ridge, uh, Stand. How do you pronounce that last name? I think Wadi. W a t i e. And Elias Budino. Nice. Um, and again, a lot of these names are very Anglo because they had assimilated at this point. Anglo or French? Well, yeah, some of them were. Budino is, I think, definitely French. Yeah. Um, Sherry. <laughs> So there were about 20 of them in all, though, and those were the most notable. And they became known as the Treaty Party. They were the ones that met with federal agents, negotiated this treaty where they would give up this land in exchange for, you know, kind of the same old story. Right. The cycle that happens again and again and again. So imagine if you were a Cherokee and you were like, we're not leaving. We're staying. We're going to fight this in the courts. We're going to, you know, take our guns to them if we have to. Uh We're not leaving our land. Then you find out that 20, 20 Cherokee leaders went secretly behind the back of the rest of the Cherokee Nation, the other 18,000 members of the the Eastern Tribe, yeah, and secretly negotiated away that land that you had just vowed to protect and never leave. There's a lot of anger. Yes. Rightfully so. So the, the ones that decided that they were going to stay were led by Chief John Ross. He was a very powerful chief um, in the East. Yeah, for... Decades. He had been negotiating to that point fairly successfully with the federal government saying, okay, if you're going to 
if you're going to take this land, we're going to sell it to you. And you're going to pay through the nose for it. Even though they still gave them a pretty fair price, like $4 and something per acre. Yeah. When the going rate was about 15. But this was, this was much more money, $20 million, I think, in, in 1830s dollars. Yeah. Than, um, than the government was prepared to spend, which was zero. Yeah. It was, no, you give us the land and you, you can move out west right. instead. So they were negotiating a treaty or John, uh, John Ross was with the blessing of the Cherokee Council and the Cherokee people as a whole. And one of the other, um, parts of that, that, uh, negotiation was that anyone, any Cherokee would be recognized as a full U.S. citizen. Yeah. It sounds like he had like a couple of, mm-hmm. Different versions of the offer. One is you can have all this land for 20 million bucks, mm-hmm. or you can have some of it for 4 million bucks. Let us keep some, and whoever wants to stay can become full citizens with all the rights afforded to a full citizen. Right. So he was actually in the middle of making what was, you know, not a bad deal for his people. No, and again, and he had the full, the blessing of the Cherokee Council to do this. Yeah, and did he not know at all? The, the treaty party was doing this? From what I understand, no. It was a secret, secret negotiation. And they were hap- happening concurrently? Right. Oh man. So the, the, uh, John Ross faction was negotiating for about four bucks an acre. The, the treaty party negotiated for about a dollar five an acre, or about five percent of the value of the land. Yeah. And they, the government said, uh, we'll go with you guys. Right. They signed the treaty. Uh, the Cherokee, when they found out about it, um, Basically signed a petition saying that's an illegal treaty. We don't, right. we don't condone that. They got something like 17,000 signatures. There were only 18,000 Cherokees in the East and the Senate still ratified it. Yeah. They said that's just very, uh, see all those names. It's very impressive. Uh, let me rip that into two pieces <laughs> and we're going to ratify this, uh, and it becomes a federal statute and, um, this kind of is what really set everything in motion for the final removal of the Cherokee. Yeah, you Cherokee now have three years to vacate your land. And uh, if you don't, well, let's just say you should vacate your land within three years is what the federal government said. But they still, for the most part, didn't leave. And uh, we'll take a break here and we'll we'll talk about that process after this. So we're back. Um, the treaty had been signed in 1835 against the will of the Cherokee people. Yeah. They had three years to get, I was going to say get out of Dodge, but man, why do I keep saying that? Get out of Cherokee. <laughs> and then I was about to say they had three years to play ball, but they'd be like, what does play ball mean? Well. It hadn't been invented yet either. No, that's true. Get with it, Chuck. Three years later, only 2,000 of the 18,000 had migrated west. And so President Martin Van Buren, who's, as, as we saw earlier, kind of just continued to carry out Jackson's policies. Yeah, Jackson was a two-term president, and the Van Buren presidency just made it 12, basically. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. Uh, he said, all right, well, here's what we're going to do, because Jackson is telling me I have to do this. <laughs> we're going to send in federal troops, and you holdouts in Georgia and the Carolinas um, – 
We have a general named Winfield Scott. He's going to bring about 7,000 men in there. And he's going to ask you nicely to leave and that he doesn't want bloodshed all while tapping on his sidearm on his hip. Exactly. Which is basically what happened. Yeah. He had a, he had a quote here. You want to read that? He wrote a statement. He said, the blood of the white man or the blood of the red man may be spilt. And if spilt, however accidentally, it may be impossible for the discreet and humane among you or among us to prevent a general war and carnage. Think of this, my Cherokee brethren. I am an old warrior and have been present at many a scene of slaughter. But spare me, I beseech you, the horror of witnessing the destruction of the Cherokees. In other words, don't make me kill all of you. And let's think about because where... Because we will. Right. We have 7,000 men behind me. Yeah. And think about where this came from. Like, this was... We want your land. You have to leave. Mm-hmm. That's that. Yeah. And now it's gotten to the point where we're going to kill you if you don't leave. Yes. And when they came and forced them to leave, finally, uh, in 1838... At gunpoint. They said, well, you have to leave now. And yeah. and it was not gather your stuff and leave. It was stop what you're doing mm-hmm. and leave. Yeah. Most of the people um, were not able to get their supplies together. Some were able to grab blankets. A lot of them were barefoot. Um, and they were herded out of their houses. Yeah. You said there was one case where there were these, uh, there was a small child who had died uh, at the night that they were preparing for burial. And they turned guns on him and said, no, 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 you can't even do that. Get out. And they had to leave this uh, body of a child behind Yeah, by itself. Plus, they also had to suffer the um, indignity of watching white settlers loot their houses as they were being marched away. Oh, yeah. The people that had been encroaching all these years mm-hmm. had free reign at this point. It was right. open season. So the, the, the federal government had built 31 posts around the Carolinas and Georgia, which were basically like temporary holding stations before the forced migration began. Yeah. And like a third of the people who died during this um, removal process among the Cherokee, died in these posts. Yeah. They died of exposure. They died of hunger. There was, like, disease ripping through these things. It was just a, a terrible situation, even just to start. Yeah, and, you know, as far as what's going on today, regardless of how you feel about deportation, just look into deportation facilities in 2017. Are they pretty bad? I mean, it wasn't, you know... People aren't dying of aren't dying of cholera, but uh, just go look it up. Make your own judgment. I'll say that. Okay. Don't want to get too political here. Um, all right. So there are a couple of routes here that uh, the Cherokee took to get to Oklahoma. Um, basically, you could go on a boat, or you can walk. Right. Maybe if you're old and frail, you might be in a wagon. Basically, you're going to walk. Yeah, the draft animals were for carrying supplies. The wagons were just for the elderly and maybe like little, little, little kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're going to have to walk. And again, a lot of these people were removed from their homes with and not given even enough time to get, get their shoes. So they were walking barefoot 1,200 miles. Yeah, and I, I think about 15,000 by foot and about 3,000 were uh, fortunate enough, I guess you could say, to go by steamship. Yeah. And we should say also that the experience of this is not, it's not the same for everybody, right? There were plenty of very wealthy Cherokees who who arranged for their own passage west, including one guy, Rich Joe Van. He was 
I don't know where he made his money, but he was a wealthy Cherokee who um, traveled privately on his own steamship. Yeah. I mean, if he owned a steamship, he's doing pretty well. Sure. Uh, and again, you point out in the article, this is it's just another reminder of how uncultured some of these Native Americans had become at this point. Mm-hmm. And they were still like, no, nah, man, you're ostensibly living like a wealthy white person, but you're still Indian, so get out. Right. The, um, again, the overlooked group in this too seems to be the African American slaves. Yeah. Um, again, some Cherokees own slaves and the slaves were made to, to go on the trail of tears with them as well. Yeah. Or forced to, um, you know, the ones who didn't have to go west were forced to relocate from all over the colonies, largely down south. Right. To support the cotton industry. That was a big deal. Um, so this land that opened up immediately became like cotton land. Yeah. And it it created the biggest agricultural economy in the world. The American South had the biggest, largest, most robust agricultural economy in the entire world during this period as a result of this land opening up. But part of that required this slave labor. And so um, the slave trade increased dramatically during this period as well. So the rem- the forced removal of uh, Native Americans led to a forced diaspora of African Americans into that land that had just been vacated where they were forced to work. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's a overlooked part of history for sure. I mean, we all understand, we know about slavery and we know that it happened and that it was in the South or whatever, but this, this period is where it just steps up exponentially. Yeah. As a direct result of the, the forced removal. Yeah, I mean, like hundreds of thousands of acres of land mm-hmm. all of a sudden that needed tending to. Um, millions of acres. Millions and millions of acres. Yeah, which is a lot of hundreds of thousands. It's <laughs> <Right? laughs> true. It'd be like dozens of acres. <laughs> About 40 million dozen. <laughs> uh, so back to the uh, the westward trail of tears. Um, this first migration was in the summer of 1838, and I don't know if anyone out there has ever walked from Georgia to Oklahoma at all. I, I wonder if that's like a thing, if anyone actually ever does that. Hike the Trail of Tears? Yeah. Uh, Jeez, I don't know. I'll bet somebody does. Probably, like in an awareness right. campaign or something. Yeah. I could see that. Um, So the, it was in the summer heat. It's It's not forgiving in any way mm-hmm. um a lot of people died on that first wave and i don't think we mentioned that chief john ross he was the last of the cherokee of uh, his group to to leave to pick up and leave yeah the 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 federal government was doing such a disastrously bad job of m- overseeing this migration yeah that john ross went to general scott and said please if we're going to migrate, let me oversee the remaining migrations because you guys are botching this. Yeah. And Scott actually said, okay, fine, you can oversee the, the migrations. Despite Andrew Jackson yeah. angrily writing, like, no, that is a terrible idea. Do not do that. You can't let the Indians oversee their own forced migration, you dummy. Right. Scott still did it. He stood up to the political pressure. Um, and so the Trail of Tears, uh, historically, what you think of the official Trail of Tears, uh, started at the Rattlesnake, uh, in Rattlesnake Springs, Tennessee, which is where? You said, is that 
Middle Tennessee? I think it's middle. Like around Memphis, maybe? Isn't Memphis in the center? No, no. Memphis is west. Uh, Nashville, then. I think it's around Nashville. Okay. Tennessee is, uh, you know, my family's from Tennessee. From and West Tennessee. And you're Choctaw? <laughs> well, Mississippi, uh, before Tennessee, but mainly from West Tennessee. Okay. Which has got probably more in common with Arkansas than, like, Nashville. Sure. You're like, maybe you've heard of my cousin. He was falsely accused of killing some boys back in the 80s. Oh, the Memphis Three? Yeah. No, not a cousin. But they were in Arkansas. West Memphis, Arkansas. Right. Yeah. It's confusing. Um, it's like, not that confusing. <laughs> well, I mean, West Memphis, Arkansas. Right. You hear Memphis, you generally think of Tennessee. That's East Memphis. <laughs> we should do a show on Elvis. Uh, we Well, we did one on Graceland. Yeah, and I think that's when I pointed out, too, that God bless my dear departed grandmother, but she was of that camp, like, oh, Elvis, he's poor thing. He just, his doctors killed him. <laughs> that's right. I was like, grandmother, he was a big fat junkie. <laughs> yeah. Died on the toilet. Made some great music though. Right. Um, <clears throat> all right. So Elvis aside, Rattlesnake Springs, Tennessee is where the Trail of Tears officially, the route kind of began. Mm-hmm. Um, and it went through, and this is something that I never considered. It went, or you know what? Let's take a break. That's a good little teaser there. Okay. And we'll talk about, um, the impact it had on these towns that it went through. Okay. Right, I teased that I had never realized this, but um, the old story you heard about white people lining up in their towns to watch the Native Americans pass through and shed a tear for them, mm-hmm. which is bunk. You're right. Or maybe one person did, probably. Yeah. Um, but it had a big, like you can't move 18,000 people, and no. that was just the Cherokee. Right. Without, um, you know, there's a big economic boon that can happen when you go through a town of that many with that many people. Right, and they went through many, many, many towns. The government spent two and a half, two point one five billion dollars in 2015 money, um, yeah. moving the Cherokee, and all of that was for things like supplies and stuff like that. And sure. So the entire, um, I think Arkansas. I think it was Arkansas, their entire um, agricultural economy shifted from the cotton boom that was going on in the rest of the South yeah. to growing corn strictly to supply the federal government f- for this migration. Yeah, it, it, the Trail of Tears itself had its own economy, right? its own moving uh, portable economy. Yeah, a lot of cottage industries grew up where, um, you know, pe- townspeople would uh, get into like porting and ferrying like helping carry supplies or moving people across bodies of water. Um, some were exploitive. Sure. N- not surprisingly. Like there were people who said, well, this is my land and I'm going to charge each of you a fee for crossing over it. Yeah. And then an exit fee when you get to the other side kind yeah. of stuff, you know? Yeah. And some of the towns would, I guess, despite the fact that it would could have been a, a bit of a temporary economic uh, boom, Refuse to even let it happen. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have passage through my town, even though it's easier on you. You got to go around this entire town. Yeah, Cape Girardeau um, did that in Missouri. They said 
it's way easier to cross the Mississippi through town, but there's another crossing two miles up, and it's treacherous, but you got to take that one. Yeah. So some of this was documented by um, white soldiers who were overseeing, I guess, from the War Department. Um, should we read a couple of these accounts? Well, yeah, I think we should. This one in particular is from John G. Burnett, who in 1890, as a, he was an old man uh, dying, uh, he was interviewed by a newspaper for his experiences because he'd been a soldier along the Trail of Tears with the Cherokee. Uh, all right, I'll read one of these. Um, I saw the helpless Cherokees arrested and dragged from their homes and driven at the bayonet point into the stockades. And in the chill of a drizzling rain on an October morning, I saw them loaded like cattle or sheep into 645 wagons and started toward the west. One can never forget the sadness and solemnity of that morning. Chief John Ross led in prayer, and when the bugle sounded and the wagon started rolling, many of the children rose to their feet and waved their little hands goodbye to their mountain homes, knowing they were leaving them forever. Many of these helpless people did not have blankets, and many of them have been driven from their home barefooted. On the morning of uh, November the 17th, we've encountered a terrific sleet and snowstorm with freezing temperatures, and from that day until we reached the end of the fateful journey on March 26, 1839, the sufferings of the Cherokees were awful. Uh, the trail of the exiles was a trail of death. They had to sleep in the wagons and on the ground without fire, and I have known as many as 22 of them to die in one night of pneumonia due to ill treatment, cold, and exposure. Uh, among this number was the beautiful Christian wife of Chief John Ross. This noble-hearted woman died a martyr to childhood, giving her only blanket for the protection of a sick child. She rode thinly clad through a blinding sleet and snowstorm, uh, developed pneumonia, and died in the still hours of a bleak winter night with her head resting on Lieutenant Gregg's saddle blanket. Yeah. So clearly some of these soldiers were kind of haunted sure. with the task that they were uh, given. Yeah, because this guy, John Burnett, was on the trail in 1838. This is 1890. He's still giving this impassioned like account of it, you know? Man. Um, there was another witness who, who estimated that the, uh, Cherokee buried 14 or 15 of their people at every stopping place. And this was along this 1200 mile trail, which they did about 10 miles a day by foot. And as a result, about 4,000 of the 7,000, 17,000 Cherokee who, uh, moved during this migration died along the way. Yeah. And again, um, just like, the cycle all, uh, when they got there, they were not met with open arms. Uh, remember the old settlers that we talked about from the very beginning, the very first ones to, mm-hmm. to go out west. Uh, they did not take kindly to their arrival. No, because remember they formed basically a different tribe of Cherokee out there. Yeah, like they were their own tribe. Yeah. That, you know, said, you know what? All bets are off. Right. This is our land. So when they showed up, the eastern Cherokees were like, yeah, but there's, a lot more of us than there are of you guys. So we're, we're in charge now. Yeah. And I think one of the more interesting things, you know, we mentioned when I said to take note, uh, with that new Echitoa treaty mm-hmm. with those 20, um, what was it? 20 or so 20 leaders, leaders that, mm-hmm. that signed this treaty against the will of, uh, John Ross. Those, I mean, that stuff was like in stone. Now this faction that was right. created with that carried through for decades and decades. Right. And, and and that same line carried over, yeah, out west as well, right? So allegiances formed between the Treaty Party supporters and the John Ross supporters. And ultimately, John Ross was able to consolidate power out there, and he became the, 
the chief of all of the Cherokees now that they were all out west, the com- the combined tribe. Yeah. And once once he consolidated power, he gave it a day or two, and then he said, okay, it's time to have the treaty party members killed. Yeah, he, he, uh, he had vengeance on his mind for sure. Uh, so he dispatched... Uh, and one night on June 22nd, 1839, uh, he dispatched some assassins. Um, they went and found the principal signers. We mentioned Major Ridge, uh, his brother John Ridge and Elias Boudinot. And they all died that night. But, uh, Stan Wati, uh, interestingly escaped. And I don't think we said, you know, we said it, um, that faction and that divide between the nation, uh, was going on for decades. It lasted into the Civil War. Yeah. And the new Echitoa supporters supported the South. Yeah. The others opposed the North. So the divide between the Union and the Confederacy also fell along that new Echitoa Treaty Party oh, yeah. and uh, John Ross supporters line still. And they fought each other as Confederate and Union soldiers. Yeah. Out really in Oklahoma. Remarkable. And actually Stan Waddy became a general in the Confederacy. Yeah. So he survived the assassination attempt. Right. Uh, he got out because he was warned by the Reverend Samuel, uh, Worcester? <laughs> Maybe. Worcestershire? Uh, and he was, I think we mentioned him earlier, he was a missionary who originally filed that suit against Georgia on behalf of the Cherokee that but, went to the Supreme Court. Right. And, um, he was, he warned, uh, Wati. Wati got out, went on to fight in the Civil War, and he was the last general to surrender in the Confederacy. The last one. Yeah. Not the last Cherokee general, the last general of the Confederacy to, to surrender. Yeah. So he, uh, very interesting story there. So overall, Chuck, between 1830 and 1850, I said it was a decade earlier. I think the 1830s were the worst of it. Yeah. But between those, those 20 years, the U.S. government moved more than 100,000 Native Americans east of the Mississippi, to the west of the Mississippi. And not just the five civilized tribes, not just the southeastern or eastern tribes, northern tribes, like basically everyone who was living east of the Mississippi between Canada and the Gulf of Mexico was pushed away across the Mississippi. And it was the first big massive movement of of Native Americans to what would be basically a, a sweeping motion by the, the by America, yeah. by the federal government from one edge of the coast to the other, trying to sweep the continent clean of Native Americans. And at first it was, here you go to this other area where Native Americans are and you can deal with it. And then eventually they started running more out of land, more and more. And it, extermination became a, a more of a policy than, than removal. Yeah, because remember we had said that Thomas Jefferson said, well, the Mississippi River is clearly going to be our western border. Sure. Um, they went on to later say... Remember when we said that we we would kind of like all the land. Yeah. And we're going to take it. And in response finally it was 2009 I think before any official apology was proffered for um the uh Trail of Tears. And it wasn't just the Trail of Tears, it covered everything. Anything yeah. that had ever been done to Native Americans by the federal government was summed up with an apology for Quote, the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples by citizens of the United States. Back to business. Yeah, and uh, that was drafted um, a few years prior to that by Kansas Senator Sam Brownback and um, signed into law by President Barack Obama. Right. And then 
I guess another, the closest thing to an apology that Georgia ever gave was, uh, back in 1916, uh, Georgia adopted the Cherokee rose as the official state flower. Yeah. And according to Cherokee legend, the flower grew from the tears of the mothers who cried for their children along the way. And the flower still grows along that official trail of tears today, all the way into eastern Oklahoma. Yeah, and that trail is uh, protected um, federally, for now at least. Yeah. So that's Trail of Tears. Man, tough one. Tough two. Yes. Uh, If you want to know more about the Trail of Tears, just type those words into your favorite search engine and start learning. And since I said start learning, it's time for listener mail. Uh, This is a correction about the Holy Roman Empire. Hey, guys, I know you like to get things right uh, even after the fact, so I thought I'd help you out a bit. Uh, Listening to the death tax episode, picked up on something you said in this and at least one other recent episode when you mentioned the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, It's pretty clear you're referring to Rome during the early part of the first millennium CE, but that's actually an incorrect moniker for that state. Uh, The Holy Roman Empire, as it's referred to in history, was a collection of Central European, traditionally Germanic uh, states, uh, though briefly some of Italy early on, uh, under a loose rule by the Holy Roman Emperor, not the Pope, who was the ruling papal, uh, who was ruling the papal states when the Holy Roman Empire was in its early existence. Uh, origins of the Holy Roman Empire began in the ninth ninth century, mm-hmm. followed by the division of Charlemagne's Frankish kingdom into the three partitions given to each of his three sons. The easternmost eventually becoming the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, uh, duh. <laughs> without getting uh, into too much specific history, I'll tell you that it's roughly uh, a 1,000-year run is filled with fascinating events and political structure unique in world history. The Catholic Reformation and the Thirty Years' War impacted and influenced heavily the political structure of the Holy Roman Empire and its member states, for one. And Chris Ortloff, buddy, you are a student of history, clearly. Yes. Very well done, and thank you for that. Nice name-dropping of Charlemagne, too, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to school us like Chris did, we love that kind of thing, especially if it's nice and pleasant. Uh, you can tweet to us. I'm at Josh Um Clark and at SYSK Podcast. Chuck's at Charles W. Chuck Bryant on Facebook and at Stuff You Should Know on Facebook, right? Yes. You can send us both an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 